felt like sleeping a little bit longer uh, and instead getting out of bed and uh, it is good to be with God's people and what a privilege it is to, I've had the, the freedom really my whole life uh, that that's what I do on Sunday and I've never felt like it was unsafe uh, to do it uh, and so it is really a gift uh, to be together, we're grateful for it. Um, you know, uh, thankful for, for Bob leading us in prayer. One of the things he prayed about is just the ongoing situation in Ukraine. And one of the things that you may have heard about maybe kind of some of the effects that we're going to feel ripple effects of what's going on there worldwide is, is how much food uh, is produced in the country of Ukraine. And uh, so, so a lot grows in that area of the world that the rest of the world really depends on in, another, in a number of ways. Another thing, though, that you probably hear less about when it comes to uh, growth is this uh, reality that God, over a period of, of centuries, has continued to grow the church in Ukraine. They don't experience, well, they didn't experience the kind of religious freedom that we have had for decades here in our country. It's really relatively new to them. Only for about the last 30 years have they had the religious freedom that we enjoy. For 130 years before that, in the country of Ukraine, there was sustained persecution of the church. In fact, the estimates are are pretty wide-ranging of how many millions of Christians died in that time. But even throughout that time, what God continued to do is to build His church there. So it came out even on the other side of that stronger. How did that happen? How does a church continue to be strengthened and growing even in the face of persecution and all sorts of unfair, unjust kind of policies? Well, I think there's a lot of answers to that, but I think the one underlying all of that is this. Even in the midst of unfair, unfortunate, and undesirable situations, God makes a way for His promises to be fulfilled. And Jesus promised that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so, the political power of communism in the past and the military might of the Russian military in the present is no match for our risen Savior who promised to build his church. That was true in Ukraine in the past and in the present. That's true in a secularizing country that we live in today. And that was true for the Apostle Paul way back in the early days of the church being built up when there was all sorts of threats rising up against it. Ever since Acts chapter 21, Paul has been a prisoner, the one appointed by God to be a missionary to the ends of the earth, to to preach the gospel to Gentiles, has been stuck in one location really since chapter 21. Well, he moved from Jerusalem up to Caesarea, which was a 60-mile move. But the Lord had promised Paul that he would go to Rome. But remember, when we left off, Paul is stuck in Caesarea, hundreds of miles away from Rome, and he's a prisoner and really a victim of kind of some political games that the governor of the time named Felix is playing Uh, with Paul. He's like a political pawn in this. And so in order to do the Jews a favor, he has allowed him, even though the charges against him, he's pretty much been found to be not guilty, but they've just held on to him anyway for a couple of years. So the tension as we come into the text today is, okay, we're still waiting. 
The Lord promised that Paul is going to be his witness in Rome, but how is he going to get there? Now he's been stuck as a prisoner in Caesarea, hundreds of miles away, and he's been there for a couple of years. How is God going to fulfill his promise to build his church in the midst of all sorts of undesirable situations? And for people like us who sometimes feel like we're having a day or maybe it's a whole season of life where it feels like everything is just like stacked up against you. Well, this is hard and this is hard and then we thought it couldn't get any worse and then it did. You've had those days, you've had those seasons, maybe they're yet to come, but Acts 25 has some good news. It's this, even in the midst of unfair, unfortunate, and undesirable situations, God makes a way for his promises to be fulfilled. So if you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to open up to Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 22 is what we're going to look at today. Uh, And if you're able to, would you stand as we read the Word of God? Hmm. Let's pray. Father... Uh, That's what we need, what we just prayed already in in song. Seated in chairs, singing words with our lips, I pray that that would be the prayer of our heart, that you would now speak, O Lord, until the church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. We, We trust those to be promises that you will fulfill, even if right now we look at situations that look like barriers to that happening. God, we trust that you are bigger and stronger and more mighty and that you will accomplish your purposes. And so I pray that that you by your Holy Spirit would remind us of that today, that as we go back into a life where we face and into a world where we see all sorts of unfair, undesirable, unfortunate situations, that we would walk out of here with a deeper trust in you. And I can't Convinced no matter how passionately I preach, but we trust that your spirit can stir our hearts and our minds towards that end. And so we pray that you would do that even now in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of the Lord from Acts chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man... Let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. 
To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat in the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. You can be seated. As usual, inside your bulletin is a sermon notes and life group guide. I encourage you to use that if that's helpful for you or if it's more helpful for you to just tune in and not take notes. This isn't just information transfer. This is, this is the Word of God being preached that we assume will have an effect and will lead us to worship the one true and living God. Acts chapter 25 begins, you know, as I studied this, I, so, so before, when I'm preparing a sermon, I just kind of do an outline of what's there. I don't want to like, here's Jeremy's idea, I want to know what's actually there, what's in God's Word, and then how do I communicate that and help the people understand that and apply that. I looked back at the outline I had made of Acts chapter 24 and then Acts chapter 25, and they were almost the same. Accusation, verses 1 through 9 in chapter 24, Paul's defense follows. Chapter 25, accusation, it's actually verses 1 through 9 again in chapter 25. Defense follows. Like, am I just preaching the same sermon over and over again? Well, that doesn't matter nearly as much as the fact that this actually happened. Paul is like living Groundhog Day over and over and over again. He keeps getting accused of things, and then he has to make a defense. And most of the time, everybody feels like, well, he's not even guilty. But they hold on to him anyway, and he gets accused of things again. So that's what's happening here. You notice the name Festus. I forgot to give you a quick background. The new governor is Festus. The old governor was Felix, okay? And the old governor is the one trying to do a Jews a favor, leaves the un- unconvicted Paul in prison for two years. And when Festus comes, thankfully, Festus is getting things going a little bit faster, He goes down to Jerusalem, he comes back to Caesarea, and pretty quickly has a trial where Paul's accusers can again come before him. But what we see in verses 1 through 9 is that the governor has changed, but it's like the same story. Again, there's accusations made against Paul. 
And again, as we saw earlier, there's a plot for Paul's life. And again, it's going to be an ambush to kill him on the journey between Jerusalem and Caesarea. Before, they had a plot to kill him when he went from Jerusalem to Caesarea. That didn't work, remember, the military evacuation that Paul was afforded 470 soldiers going with him as he traveled from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Now, they're plotting again. Two years later, they're plotting again another ambush to kill him on the way. This time, they're hoping on the way from Caesarea back down to Jerusalem. So they try to get the governor to get Paul to go back to Jerusalem for another trial so that they can kill him along the way. Now, we don't know Luke doesn't tell us if the governor knew of the plan to kill him or if he was oblivious to that plan. Regardless, what we see in the verses that follow is the stage gets set for another trial in verses 4 through 6. They bring charges against Paul again in verse 7. And whereas in the last chapter, Paul's defense went from verses 10 through 21. So in chapter 24, Paul's defense was a big part of the passage. Here, Luke summarizes Paul's defense in only one verse. It's verse 8. So again, charges brought against Paul, but here it's just one sentence, or yet one sentence in verse 8 of a defense. It says this, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. Paul's plea again is not guilty of these things they're accusing me of. I'm not Guilty of those things. Well, what's the result going to be? Verse 9. But Festus, oh, here we go again, playing politics with Paul as the pawn, right? But Festus, verse 9 says, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? So we've got the tension again. Okay, so if, if Jesus promised Paul that he's going to get him to Rome, how's he going to get him to Rome when some people want to kill him and their plan is to do it on the way to Jerusalem and now the governor who has the authority has asked Paul, do you want to go down to Jerusalem for another trial? If Paul says yes, it seems almost certain that he's going to be killed. How is God going to make a way for Paul to get to Rome? Well, that's what we see in verses 10 to 12. So point number two comes from verses 10 to 12, and that is this. God provides the way to Rome. Jesus had promised Paul that he would be going to Rome, and so now we're going to see, well, how's he going to get there? Because it's not looking good, humanly speaking, but look at verse 10. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. Now, now listen to what Paul does in verse 11. He's, like, he's taking responsibility. He's saying, if I've done something wrong, if these charges are true, and I deserve death, then go ahead. I'll take responsibility for my actions. Verse 11 says, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die... I do not seek to escape death, right? Before Paul has written, well, later he will write in his letter to the Philippians, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. <laughs> like you can, you can go ahead and kill me. If you think I deserve to be killed, I don't seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, 
no one can give me up to them. And then he uses this line, I appeal to Caesar. Caesar, the emperor who's in where? Rome, right? Paul, though he is Jewish and could have a trial before uh, some of his fellow Jews there in Jerusalem, is also a Roman citizen. And so he has the right to appeal to the emperor, and he does. He appeals to Caesar, and so the governor, verse 12 tells us, Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So this tension of how is Paul going to get to Rome when he's a prisoner, and not only a prisoner, but a prisoner who has a group of people who have plotted his death, how is he going to get to Rome? Well, the answer is, well, he's going to kind of have an all-expenses state-paid trip (laughs) as a prisoner sent to Rome. How many times, think about this for a moment, because we, like, we went through this fast. How many times, though, do you think that while Paul waited in Caesarea, remembering God's call to him to be his witness to the Gentiles, his desire to go to Rome, to go to the ends of the earth, and to, and to share the gospel with more people, yet he's grounded, he's being detained, held on to for two years with no convictions, but just held on to there in Caesarea. How many times do you think that Paul doubted God's plan? How many times do you think Paul cried out in prayer, when God? How long, God? The situation for Paul was unfair. It was unfortunate and it was undesirable to be sure. Yet, God seems to be providing a way for Paul to get to Rome. We're going to talk about that in application here in a moment, but, but first. And it just seems like, you know, sometimes it's just like nothing's going right. Here goes another one of those things. Like, all right, I appeal to Rome. Yes, you can go to Rome. Now, I don't know about you, I'm the kind of guy who likes to make a plan, and once there's a plan, let's execute the plan, right? Let's do this. If I'm Paul, I'm strapping up my sandals. I said I appeal to Caesar. You said I can go to Caesar. Let's go to Caesar. Let's do this, right? But we've got a couple of new characters to be introduced to here. So I'm not going to go in detail over verses 13 through 22. I just read them to you. And really what you have happening, as you heard me read it, is you hear Festus' version of the story of Paul. Agrippa, the king, and his sister Bernice have shown up there in Caesarea. And because the king is there, Festus, the governor, thinks, well, you should probably know about this case. So he's just telling him about Paul's case. And the conclusion of the matter, there's some interesting things in how he goes about telling, you know, he's like, well, I don't even really get it. I don't think he's guilty of anything, except for something about this Jesus who's dead, but he says he's alive. You know, it's, it's their religious dispute. It's, he's not done anything against the state, right? So he's not all that concerned. Yet, the conclusion of the matter is, well, this sounds at least intriguing to King Agrippa, And so Agrippa says, I'd like to hear him. This is verse 22. I'm in the wrong chapter. Verse 22. 
Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. And what does Festus say? Tomorrow you will hear him. Okay? So, next Sunday, Pastor Nick is going to take us through this interaction between Paul and Agrippa and Bernice. I love this interaction. I'm really looking forward to hearing Pastor Nick preach it. But it's going to be a long passage that Pastor Nick's going to preach. So I thought, well, I'll take a chunk of it uh, by, by, by introducing Agrippa and Bernice uh, in this kind of but first segment of the, ser- of the sermon today to kind of get us ready for the interaction that we're going to see next week. Bernice is the sister of Agrippa. Luke doesn't tell us that. He just mentions Agrippa, the king, and Bernice. But Bernice is his sister. They're together. And here's what we know about Agrippa. Luke just writes Agrippa, but his longer name is King Herod Agrippa II. Okay? King Herod Agrippa II. Here's what we know about him. His dad was Agrippa I, who had James killed back in Acts chapter 12. So you might remember another Agrippa. That was this Agrippa's dad who had James executed. You might also remember another man named Herod from Scripture, Herod Antipas. He would be the great uncle of this Herod Agrippa II. His great uncle, Herod Antipas, was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded and later heard Jesus' case after Pilate sent Jesus to him on the night when Jesus was arrested. And you might also think of another guy named Herod. That would be this guy's great-grandpa, his name, Herod the Great, who at the time of Jesus' birth had all boys aged two and under in the region of Bethlehem killed. So if you're looking at Paul's like earthly situation, everything so far seems to be unfair, unfortunate, and undesirable. And now, just as Paul has appealed to Caesar and been given permission to go to Caesar, who shows up in town? This guy. Herod Agrippa II with a family history of finding the people of God and killing them. Unfortunate, it seems. So the tension as we walk into next week's sermon is, how will King Herod Agrippa II factor into God's promise and plan to send Paul to Rome? Will he get in the way of God's promise being fulfilled? Looking forward to hearing Pastor Nick walk us through that next week. But let's talk a little more about what we've seen this week. Just as God made a way for his promise to Paul to be fulfilled amidst unfair, unfortunate, and undesirable situations. God still does that kind of thing, doesn't he? (laughs) I mean, think about your life. Have you or are you now facing situations that you would call unfair, unfortunate, undesirable? Last week when I did announcements at the beginning of the worship service, I mentioned that the number of people in the church that have come to me in recent weeks sharing their struggles has sharply increased. And if you've been one of those people that's come to me, you found out I don't usually have answers in three quick, easy steps to making everything better by tomorrow. I just, like, I don't, I don't have that. What we do when we get together, though, is we pray, we turn to God's Word for encouragement and guidance, and we watch God work. 
It's been such a joy for me to see up close and personal how God is at work in many of you who are living in the midst of tough situations. Now, I can't share these stories with you and just say, well, it's encouraging. God's still at work. I I know this not just because I see it in Scripture, but because I see it in our lives, church, that God, in the midst of unfair, unfortunate, and undesirable situations, continues to be at work to fulfill His promises. So, let me just walk us through a couple of general principles, and these might then, I think, apply to you. Maybe you're in the midst right now of an unfair situation. Maybe you've been unfairly treated at work. Maybe you've been on the wrong end of a misunderstanding in family that's caused real damage to real relationships. I think it's good to be reminded that God will make a way to fulfill His promise. I I love this one from Luke chapter 6. Jesus is speaking and He says this, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. There will be justice someday. And our reward will be great for all who trust in Jesus. Secondly, maybe you're facing an unfortunate situation. Maybe it's just one of those things where it just feels like, man, it's just like one thing and then another thing. and another. It's like doing a home project. You done like a home project where you thought it was going to be a little project and then because you uncovered one problem, you realize, oh, there's more. And it just, it just like, wow. So that was way, a way bigger deal than I expected it to be. That's the way life feels sometimes, isn't it? It's like one thing goes wrong and it's just like another, like another and it's just like you're getting beat down right? Unfortunate situation. Like maybe it's not like, oh, this is somebody's fault. It's not really unfair necessarily. It's just the way things are going. Maybe relationships are struggling right now. Maybe money is tight for you and it's getting worse. Maybe you're in the two-year time of waiting in prison like Paul and you're discouraged and doubtful. Stuff just isn't working out. I love this promise from Philippians 4.19. Here's what we can know. My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We need to be reminded of that. And then an undesirable situation. Maybe that's the situation you find yourself in now. Like Paul, who wanted to be doing what God called him to do, but he couldn't. It seemed that way, didn't it? Like, well, God, if you have called me to be a missionary and to go to Rome, why are you allowing me to be stuck here in Caesarea for two years? Maybe you have a health problem preventing you from doing what you desire to do. Maybe it's not just one problem. It's like a a stack of things. Just getting older and you can't do everything that you feel like, God, you've called me to do this and I'm just frustrated because I can't do what you've called me to do. That can be so frustrating. In my Bible reading plan right now, I'm in Numbers. You remember how God had promised people a land. He had rescued them from slavery in Egypt 
Remember the, the ten plagues, these kind of miraculous things that God does that eventually result in, in Pharaoh letting his people go. God parts the Red Sea so all of these people walk across on dry land. So God is fulfilling promise after promise. And then, and then immediately after parting the Red Sea, they enter into the promised land and are filled with thanksgiving to God. Right? Some of you are like, no, that's not, what Bible you were, like, you're right, that's not how it went. Because all of the parts up till the parting of the Red Sea were true, but then they, they walk out and they don't walk right into the promised land, they walk out into the wilderness. And life in the wilderness is hard. Though God has done all of these things for them, remember what their thankful response is to God. Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6, an example. Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember, so, so there's not much food out in the wilderness for this many people, so God provides manna. Like, it just shows up. They're not even farmers yet, right? It just shows up on the ground, and they go out and they gather it, and they got a recipe, they put it together, and they eat. Every day this happens, except for on the Sabbath, but before that, it happens in double, so they have enough for the Sabbath, right? God is providing for them. What do they do? Oh, that we had meat to eat. And then they start remembering how great slavery was, right? We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. That cost nothing. Oh, man, they were, look, we were provided for. Those Egyptians, weren't they so? You remember reading in Exodus what slavery had become like, right? Less straw, more bricks. 400 years. The cucumbers, the melons. The leeks, the onions, and the garlic. I love food. So like I'm reading this like, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, and the slavery, right? But all they remember is all the good stuff they had. No charge. Well, they lived as slaves in Egypt. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Isn't it easy to forget all that God has already done? And all that God has promised to do. And we just look at our situation that right now seems unfair, unfortunate, undesirable. And we just start to complain and grumbling really quick. That's easy. Anybody guilty of that? It's so easy. We need to be reminded in these moments that God will make a way to fulfill His promise. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those that are called according to His purpose. That's Romans 8, 28. We know it because it says it in Scripture, and we know it because we've seen it to be true in our lives. Church, it's easy to look at the big world around us, or even at the small world that we live in every day. Even if we're like, ah, I'm sick of hearing the world, like I'm just going to look at my own world. Even that one's hard. It's easy to notice all of the unfair, unfortunate, undesirable situations around us. War rages on. Abusers keep abusing. Manipulators keep manipulating. Disease keeps debilitating. Depression keeps discouraging. Anxiety keeps accelerating. Finances continue to fizzle. We experience all sorts of unfair, unfortunate, undesirable situations in our sin-sick world. It's true, they're real, and they're here. But in the midst, we must not forget to behold our God who is seated on His throne. We must not forget 
that no war, no government, no pandemic, no dictator, no political party, no stupid idea, no major mistake, nothing can stop Jesus from fulfilling his promise that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We see that over and over and over again in the first century church in the book of Acts. We see it over and over and over again in church history. And we see it over and over and over again in our own lives and in our own times. Let's not walk around as though we are defeated people who've got all sorts of reason to grumble and complain. Let's walk around recognizing that God has been entirely gracious to us. That He has fulfilled and will fulfill all of His promises to us in Christ Jesus. And I'd be missing out on an opportunity if I didn't point out this truth. A gospel application point. That God provided Jesus to be the way. God will build His church. And He does it one by one as He draws people to Himself. As one by one the sheep hear His voice and are welcomed into the fold. As one by one the great shepherd holds us and keeps us, saying no one can snatch us from our Father's hand. Here's some good news. John chapter 14, verse 6. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when I say that God will provide a way, I don't want you to miss out on like, he's not just talking about like, he's going to make things all better here real quick. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, first and foremost, God has provided the way. He has provided his son. And only through the, the perfect active obedience of Jesus and the substitutionary death and, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus and, and the current intercession of Jesus before the throne of God and, and the coming of Jesus again, do we have hope. That, that we have a way for a relationship with God the Father. And it comes only through the Son, who is the way provided by the Father for us. In Jesus, God has provided us the way. In Jesus, all the promises of God find their yes and amen. And if you trust in Jesus, then we can hear this good news. That He who did not spare His own Son but willingly gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Church, I don't know what all of you are going through, but I can tell you we're going to be okay. <laughs> the one who gave up his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? He's a father who delights to give good gifts. And I know also that what Jesus said is that the way is narrow that leads to life. And wide is the path that leads to destruction. It looks a lot more comfy. And you know, honestly, that your life, it might feel, by the world standards, your, your life might feel better by the world standards on the broad road. But Jesus says the broad road leads to destruction. And so, I desire that me and that our church would be a people that walk the narrow road with all of its steep 
paths, with all the rocks and the barriers in front of us, with all the unfair, unfortunate, and undesirable situations, but in the midst of all of that, we being a people who are confident that God will make a way, God will fulfill all of His promises for our good. We don't always understand those ways, but we trust Him in it. And so that's the closing song we're going to sing here. It comes, we, we, we started learning it together as a church last week. We're going to do it again this week when we introduce a new song. We try to do it a few times so that we can kind of just get it into our heads. It comes right out of Romans chapter 11, which is a doxology, and it is a good song and a beautiful passage. Let me just read it, and then I'll pray as the worship team comes up to lead us. It says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. So to Him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we are amazed at the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. We're not good at all at finding our own way, so thank you that in the midst of our unfair, unfortunate, undesirable situations, you always find a way to fulfill your promises. As Paul wrote, who can know your mind, God? (laughs) Who has been your counselor? (laughs) Or who of us has, has a gift to give you that, that we deserve to be repaid by you. We don't always know, God, how you work. But we know that you're always working. How unsearchable your judgments. How untraceable your paths. We don't always get why or how, but we do know with confidence that you will make a way. For from you, and through you, and to you are all things. So to you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you stand as we worship together?